welcome back to Banter, a policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Spencer Moore. And I'm Cece Gallagher. We're joined today by AI resident scholar Ken Pollack. Ken, thanks for being with us again. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me back. And we're going to focus our conversation today on your latest book. It's called Armies of Sand, The Past, Present, and Future of Arab Military Effectiveness. And that book analyzes why Arab armies have consistently underperformed since World War II. Um, And in the book, Dr. Pollock, you described four explanations for why Arab militaries have performed so poorly. So we're going to explore each of those explanations throughout our discussion today, if that works for you. Absolutely. Sounds good. Terrific. So let's start broadly speaking about how you arrange this book. Each explanation has a section that addresses it in detail. Can you describe a little bit how you tested these explanations? Sure. So I wanted to come at them from a variety of different perspectives, right? Because these are big ideas. There's a lot of history that needs to be covered. And I also, I wanted to be very respectful of the people who believed in each explanation, right? This is a problem that's been around for a long time. A lot of very smart people have offered their ideas for what's going on here. And I wanted to to really be respectful of their views and not treat anything lightly. So in every case, what I tried to do was to both look at Arab military history itself, right? Because these are ideas about what the Arabs have been doing poorly in battle and simply ask the question, okay, does it make sense? Right. Do we see changes in what someone thinks is going on actually causing changes in the battlefield performance? Right. So, for instance, one of the uh, explanations I look at, and I know we're going to talk about more in a second, is politicization. Right. The idea that the poor civil-military relations of the Arab world are really the problem here. This is an important idea. I think that it's part of what's going on with the Arabs. But so one of the things I tried to do is I looked at Arab armies that had their the politicization, the bad military-civil relations get worse over time or get better over time, right? Because if that's the problem, then the problems of their militaries should get worse as the civil-military relations get worse. So one part of each section is just looking within the Arab history and asking, do things track, right? Do they go the right way? The other was in every section, I wanted to bring in the experience of non-Arab armies, right? Because there are a lot of militaries in the world that have had similar kinds of problems. Um, Another one of the explanations I know we're going to talk about is underdevelopment. The fact that these are all third world militaries. Well, there are a lot of third world militaries. And if the problems that the Arabs were having were problems of just being a third world country, well, then every third world country's military ought to have the same sets of problems. So I did them in these different parts of the book so that for each part, I could look at an explanation and say, first, does it track with Arab military history? And then do we find that the problems that the Arabs are having, are they the same as other countries that have that same issue? When you're looking at military effectiveness, especially for the layperson without any sort of expertise in military relations, like Cece and I, we sort of look at you're effective if you win or lose, but there's a ton of different criteria that go into military effectiveness. Can you go through, you do this in the beginning of the book, sort of the the variables that you're able to draw out to look at how effective a military is? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question, Spencer. And look, the the bottom line is, uh, yes, winning and losing are part of 
obviously it's their, it's what militaries are about. But when you're actually asking how good they are, how effective they are, how capable they are, then you got to start looking at a much more micro level. How do they do certain kinds of operations? And obviously there are thousands, there are millions, there may be infinite numbers of different kinds of operations and different ways of doing things. What I really started by doing was just going through all of Arab military history since 1948 um, and asking the question, what is it that the Arabs seem to do badly, right? You're right. At the end of the day, they lose a lot of wars and they, once that they win, they win just barely, right? And they typically win just barely when they ought to win really big. If you're just kind of looking at raw numbers or equipment or things like mother, we call material explanations, right? So the first question I asked is what are they doing wrong? Right? And I came up with exactly as you point out, I think 12 to 14 different kind of categories of military operations that they seem to do badly and do badly the same way. Um, these are things like poor maintenance, right? Uh, they've got all kinds of military equipment, tanks, cannons, fighter planes, and they do a terrible job of maintaining them, of just keeping them up, making sure that the oil is changed, uh, making sure that the missile radars actually work, all this kind of basic stuff. They're really bad about it. But the most important problems that they had lay in a certain, a few different areas. First was tactical leadership. What I mean by that is, you know, obviously militaries are big hierarchies. And the Tactical leaders are typically the what we call non-commissioned officers, the corporals and the sergeants, up through, again, what are called field-grade officers, lieutenants, captains, majors, uh, lieutenant colonels, up to colonels, the people who command units from, from platoons to basically regiments or, in some cases, brigades. And what was interesting is that in war after war after war, Arab tactical leaders have real problems and they have real problems in the same ways again and again and again. And what, what you found was their tactical leaders have a real hard time being aggressive, showing initiative, being innovative in their approaches. Uh, they would wait for orders to do anything and everything. Hmm. And if they didn't get orders, they often wouldn't take actions that were obvious, in some cases were necessary for their own self-preservation, and they wouldn't do them. Wow. Right? And so tactical leadership was a big one. Another one was information management, air operations, a few other things. Those were the ones that really stood out. And so when I looked at all the different explanations, the question that I was really asking was, do we see these patterns reflected in these problems, these specific problems that the Arabs have had with tactical leadership, information management, etc.? Now, before we get further into the meat of this book, I want to ask a big overarching question. Why should it matter to the U.S. that these Arab militaries perform so poorly? Yeah, it's a great one, Cece. I, I love this question. Um, I mean, look, obviously, there's just kind of an interesting historical quandary there. But you're right. If that were all this is, you know, OK, fine. Some historian can write this. I'm interested in the Middle East today. And I'm interested in particular in the United States role in the Middle East and what role it should be playing. That's my job here. That's what I've devoted my entire career to. And I think that the book and the subject of the book is important for a few reasons. First of all, because the Middle East military balance has been driven by the ineffectiveness of Arab armed forces. 
Right? The truth is, it took about 25 years, from 1948 to 1973, for the Arab states to realize that they actually really weren't very good at war fighting and to mostly stop doing it, at least against other countries. There are a couple of outliers, right? Muammar Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, they never got the memo and didn't read it when they got it. Um, and as a result, they got into wars they had no business getting into and ultimately leads to their own demise. Everybody else figures it out, right? And it leads to a very stable military balance. One of the reasons I wrote this is because I'm afraid that that's coming to an end that the different factors that I identify, these societal factors which have been hamstringing Arab militaries for so many decades, they're starting to change. And so the first thing is, I'm afraid that we're going to have some major changes in the future which could upset the Middle East military balance that could cause new wars. A second and even more, I think, you know, kind of down-to-earth point to make is, you know, for about the last, I don't know, 40 years, the United States has been trying desperately to train Arab militaries. Now, we've also done some fighting of Arab militaries, but, you know, starting with the Egyptians and the Jordanians and the Saudis, we've been trying to train these Arab militaries so that they can defend themselves. And what we have found is that no matter what we do, it just doesn't seem to work. Right? And the question becomes why? And one of the reasons why the United States hasn't been able to disengage from the Middle East is that our allies there really can't defend themselves. You know, they can't defend themselves against Iran without us. You know, we saw this recently in 2014 when the Iraqi army that we built gets swept aside by ISIS. Right? And everyone starts asking the question, you spent so much money and so much time building up this Iraqi military, and they get overwhelmed by 2,000 guys driving Hondas and Hyundais, right? You know, what the heck? What's this all about? Right? And so that, I think, is a critical issue. And one of the things I hope to do with the book was to give some ideas about why we haven't been able to do better and how maybe we could in the future. So let's take two or three minutes to dive into these four explanations. The first one is the extent to which these Arab militaries adopted Soviet tactics. Can you can you talk about who adopted Soviet tactics and how that affected Arab military effectiveness after World War II? Sure. And obviously, we're going to keep this brief sure. for our listeners. Yeah. Um, but you know, please, everybody understand, and I know you guys are well aware of this, this these are big, complicated topics, and I am really going to shorthand this. <laughs> All right. So the First, the bottom line is that there were a number of Arab countries that certainly there are a lot that bought Soviet weapons, but some of them did get Soviet training. Right. First thing that we find is the way that they fight has nothing to do with how the Soviets fight. Right. The Soviets had a very distinctive system. The Russians have kind of carried that on into the future. But, you know, from World War II on, the Soviets had a very distinctive way of fighting. And it's just not how the Arabs fought. And, you know, interestingly, one of the things that I do in the book is I have a lot of references to Soviets complaining about their Arab charges. You know, just as we have Americans who come back from these training missions in the Middle East and they complain, you know, our Arab allies, they can't learn anything. The Soviets were saying the exact same thing, right? The Arabs didn't do things their way. We often blamed them. We'd blame their problems on the Russians, on the Soviet training. And what the Soviets were saying is, nah, these guys aren't learning from us. They're doing what they like to do. 
And then, of course, as I talked about beforehand, I compare the performance of the Arabs and a couple of Arab armies and how they did with their Soviet methods to two other non-Arab armies that really did adopt the Soviet methods and did much better than the Arabs, the Cubans and the North Koreans. So I look at the North Koreans during the, the Korean War where, you know, they're not a perfect army. They've got their problems. But what's interesting is they don't have any of the same problems as, as the Arabs. And in fact, in those areas that the Arabs have those biggest problems, what we talked about beforehand, tactical leadership, uh, information management, etc., the North Koreans are great. Same thing for the Cubans when they fight in Africa in the 1970s. They are terrific at that kind of stuff. And those maintenance problems and weapons handling I talked about beforehand, one of the fascinating things is that the Russians will use Cubans and North Koreans in the Arab world to take care of the Arab weaponry, which they can't take care of themselves. So I come away saying, look, it's clearly not the Russians. You can't blame them for the problems. Complete ignorance of history, but the extent to which Cuba was involved in African conflicts, it read like a fantasy <laughs> novel. I was, just completely, I was like, what were they doing in Angola? I know. It was illuminating. <laughs> this really also does feel like the lightning round of this book because you go into great detail, but we're just giving the surface level. So I totally encourage our listeners to check the book out. But second mm. um, explanation that you referred to is the politicization of the civil-military relations. You talk about three main variations of this. Can you talk about those in turn and how they influenced Arab armies? Sure. Um, first of all, this is kind of the hot idea out there, particularly in the academic world. People are always looking for explanation of why politics is at the root of everything, understandable. Um, as you point out, there are three different variants of this, right, of bad relations between the civilian leadership and the military. So one, the one that most people know of is what I call, what most people call Praetorianism. And that's the military taking over the government, right? It's a military dictatorship. And when they do that, all kinds of bad things happen, right? Because politics comes into the military, the military winds up dealing with stuff it had no business dealing with, right? They suddenly have to make agricultural policy, right? What does a general or an admiral know about agriculture policy? And they get into fights over it, right? So you have problems there. The second variant of politicization I talk about is what I call commissarism. Uh, what my friend Jim Quinlivan at Rand once called coup-proofing. And that's kind of the flip side of Praetorianism. So Praetorianism is the military takes over the government. Commissarism is the government, afraid of the military, puts all kinds of rigid controls over the military so it can't take over the government or even just disobey the government. But those political controls then become deeply problematic for the military in conducting its main business. And then the last variant I look at is what, it's a really awkward term, and I'm always looking for a better one, but it's the best I've come up with. I call palace guardism, right? And the point there is that, you know, we think of an army as something that fights other armies, but let's be honest. There are a lot of armies throughout history that that wasn't their main mission. Their main mission wasn't to fight other armies. Their main mission was to protect the regime, whether it be to protect the leader against assassinations or coup attempts or rival tribes or other groups inside. And so, you know, if you're a palace guard military and your job is mainly just to kind of beat people up in the streets, if you actually have to go up against another army, chances are you're not going to do very well. Right? So I look at these three different – and by the way, the Middle East has seen all of them, right? And it, you know, what's interesting is there's kind of a periodicity. 
early on after World War II, it's all about Praetorianism. The militaries overthrow all the governments. We get lots of, of military dictatorships. Then at different points, the leaders, whether they're military officers or kings or other civilians, they figure this out. And they impose very heavy commissarist controls. And that's when the coups basically end, at least the successful coups basically end, right? And then they become palace guard militaries because they've done such an effective job at preventing the coups that they, they're, and frankly, they've also realized that they're not good at fighting other states, something we talked about, that they just stop. And they really just use the militaries simply to control their own populations, right? So you see this kind of cycle. And, you know, there what I did was I looked at, in particular, two Arab countries, the Egyptians and the Iraqis, who during their wars, so the Egyptians during the Arab-Israeli wars, the Iraqis during the Iran-Iraq war, massively depoliticized their military, right? Both of them, different times, the Egyptians after the catastrophic defeat of the Six-Day War, the Iraqis over a period of time after losing to Iran time and again, realize that, you know what, these political controls really are problematic. We've got to get rid of them. We've got to allow our generals to fight the way that they want to and allow the militaries to, func to function the way that they should. And those two by themselves are interesting because what you see is both Egypt and Iraq do better. And they do better in certain areas. Uh, their generalship improves dramatically. In some cases, the morale of their troops and the cohesion of their units improves very significantly, right? And so we can say, clearly, politicization had a big role there. But what's also interesting is what doesn't change at all, tactical leadership, information management, maintenance. Clearly, that's not being affected by the politicization. And then, of course, I also go on and I look at two other highly politicized militaries, uh, the South Vietnamese military during the Vietnam War and the Argentine military during the Falkland. These are two of the most politicized militaries in the world. And look at them. And again, what I find is there are some similarities with the Arabs. Again, generalship, uh, morale, unit cohesion, they have the same problems. Good signs that this is a result of the politicization. But they don't have the same problems with tactical leadership or information management, maintenance, weapons handling. Clearly, something else is going on there. So I come away from this section saying politicization played a role. It clearly did. And when it was president, it was a problem. But it's not the only thing going on and probably not the most important thing. Well, let's move on to the third explanation. And you referenced this a little bit in the, in the intro to this interview. And it's the industrialization of these countries, that they're third world countries and they just don't have the resources to actually uh, equip their militaries for success. What did you find when you looked at uh, this explanation? Sure. Um, and again, you know, this is a really interesting one to me because it's something you hear a lot about, especially yeah. as a military analyst. People just say it all the time. Well, you know, the third world militaries, how could they possibly... But then you start asking yourself, and, and you know, this is what I had to do, is what does that mean, right? And I think that there are aspects of underdevelopment that really were problematic for all underdeveloped societies. A big one that I talk about a lot is just that if you're an underdeveloped society, if you haven't gone through the process of industrialization, typically you don't have a lot of contact with machinery. And so people don't know how to interact with machinery. They don't have the same time frame. They can't work in the same pace. They don't understand the information requirements, or as we talked about, the maintenance requirements of machinery. Right? So what I looked at there was I looked at um, some Arab militaries that evolved over time. So I looked in particular at the Syrians from 1948 to 1982, when Syria 
you know, look, it, Syria doesn't become Japan or Germany, um, but nevertheless, there's a very significant economic development in Syria during that period of time. And I look at how they fought their wars. And what's interesting is, you know, 1948, they fight Israel. 1982, they fight Israel. They're doing better in terms of their ability to handle weapons. They can handle more sophisticated weapons. They do maintenance a little bit better, but not much, right? And they're still under development, so that certainly explains that. But once again, what's really fascinating, no change in tactical leadership, information management, air-to-air warfare, those same persistent problems. And what the Israelis say time and again is that's what's holding them back. Right, I've got this great, you know, there's this very famous air battle in the 1982 uh, Israeli invasion of Lebanon where the Israelis, you know, in the course of basically three days, shoot down 86 Syrian MiGs for no losses of their own. Hmm. And what the Israelis point out is it has nothing to do with the planes, right? Yeah, they're flying F-15s, which are better than the Syrian MiGs. But what they point out is the Syrian pilots are flying figure eights. They're not dogfighting. And so I've got this great quote from an Israeli commander saying, you know, they're going to get shot down if that's what you do. So I looked at that and then I compared uh, the Arab states to the Chinese military during the Korean War and the Chadian military in the 1980s. And I did that specifically because at those periods of time, these were two of the poorest countries on earth. And so if the problem was really under development, then these two should have been the worst militaries in the world and should have had the same problems as the Arabs, even worse than the Arabs, because they were so much less developed. And in fact, what I found is exactly the opposite. In point of fact, the Chadians, and the great example here is I've got, you know, the Chadians are fighting the Libyans. And they route the Libyans because Chadian tactical leadership and information management and maneuver warfare is so much better than the Libyans. And so again, I come away from that saying there's clearly a role for underdevelopment as well, right? It did affect maintenance. It did affect weapons handling, right? No question about that, but there's something still left out and it's the really big thing. It's those pieces, tactical leadership, information management that have been most problematic for the Arabs. So let's turn now to that really big thing, which you say the most important explanation for the poor performance of Arab militaries is culture. But before we ask you about that, you make several caveats in the book. Of course, there's some sensitivities of addressing the issue of culture. So can you share some of those caveats with us now? Sure. Um, and yeah, as I, you know, I, I have three, ch- you may not have noticed this, but I have three chapters of caveats before I ever start talking about what Arab culture looks like. Because this is, as I say in the book, Dealing with culture is like dealing with nitroglycerin, right? It may be absolutely necessary to do it. And, you know, look, I'm just a dumb military analyst. I don't believe in political correctness. If there's a problem, I'm going to say this is a problem. But I recognize there are tremendous sensitivities. And I say with nitroglycerin, you know, if you're not really careful with it, you can do a lot of damage. Right? And that's the problem with culture. And there are lots of people who've treated it very cavalierly. Um, so the first thing that I did was to say, well, look, I am just a dumb military analyst. I am not an anthropologist. I am not a sociologist or a social psychologist or a cultural psychologist. So I shouldn't be the one telling you what is or is not a, an emphasis of Arab culture. So the first thing I did was simply I went to, there's an enormous literature 
on the culture of the Arab world. And I went looking for consensus, consensus I, consensuses, uh, among the anthropologists, sociologists, and cultural psychologists, what did they consistently find? And if there wasn't a consensus, I simply left it out. Right? I wasn't going to judge for myself. So I only looked for areas where there was a consensus and obviously only where there was a pattern of behavior that seemed to have some relevance to military affairs. So you know, I, I know this made the book more boring, but I left out all of the stuff about you know, Arab sexual practices and marriage and all that kind of stuff, and, which you know, may be much more interesting to the reader, but have nothing to do Sequel. with military operations. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, in addition, you know, I, I, and this becomes important to think about the relationship of culture and politicization. One of the points I tried to make is, look, culture is nothing but a mean around which individuals vary, right? And the truth is, you may, you know, they, uh, anthropologists talk about the culturally regular persona. What they really mean is the mean out there. And, you know, the truth is, you may never, that person may not exist. There may not be a pure, you know, cultural, regular Arab. These are just means around which people vary, and everyone has their idiosyncrasies. And as a result, the only way that you really see culturally driven patterns of behavior is in lots of actions over time by lots of people. And the more that you're talking about a small number of people doing very limited things in a set period of time, the less likely that what's going on is really going to be about culture, the more it's going to be about something else and the idiosyncrasies of that people. And that's important when you think about culture versus politicization, say, because politicization is really the opposite. Politicization is really about the top of a military hierarchy because the truth is that leaders Political leaders, even the craziest political leaders, even Joseph Stalin, really didn't care about the political inclinations of his lieutenants and captains and majors. And the truth was they were all too young to have really expressed many political views. And there were way too many for him to have actually dealt with. Right? His generals, that's another story. And it's why what you see is time and again when there's a coup, where there's a purge, excuse me, um, you know, and the political leadership gets worried about the military leadership, the axe always falls heaviest on the top of the hierarchy. And so politicization has its greatest impact at the top. That's why poor generals, bad generals are common. Culture's the opposite, right? Where you see culture most is with these huge numbers of people at the bottom of a military pyramid. And since we are talking about hierarchies and decision-making, right, we're really talking about the corporals and the sergeants and the lieutenants and captains and majors. That's really where you're gonna see cultural predilections, cultural emphases, because it's the largest numbers of people that in the aggregate are gonna be doing things closest to culture. So it sets up that disjuncture between culture and politicization. But again, it's a really important caveat because it's why you shouldn't ever stereotype, right? Why you shouldn't assume if I meet an Arab, she is going to act this way because you know something about their culture. They're individuals, you know, and their behavior is going to be driven by that individuality. So with those caveats being said, 
let's just dive right into it. I mean, what is it about Arab culture to the extent that Arab culture expands in a uniform way in some way over the 18 countries that you address in the Arab world? What is it that makes it difficult to put together an effective military? Right. And, you know, here's what I, I know you, you got to ask me this question. It's fair for you to do so. It's a good question. But I, I just got I'm so I get so uncomfortable when I have to boil this down. That's why I did write a book with with, you know, so big and, and deal with so many lots of nuances. Yeah. Exactly. But if I if I had to boil it down and I know I need to boil it down, I think the best way to think about it is to go back to what I was talking about with regard to hierarchies. Every society has hierarchies, right? They are the hallmark of civilization, right? When we define civilization, we are actually talking about the existence of hierarchies. And what's interesting is, though, every, every society's hierarchies function differently. Some are very bottom-up. Some are very top-down. Some are kind of inside-out or, you know, side-to-side. Side, but we have different ways of functioning, and every society has a set of rules about how people at the top of a hierarchy are supposed to behave, how people at the bottom. And of course, every society's hierarchies work for them, right? They accomplish what they need to accomplish. And of course, the whole point of culture is that culture is a set of values and behaviors that a society develops over time to deal with its circumstances, right? So it goes through this Darwinian process of what works for them in its circumstances, right? So every culture's way of doing things makes sense for itself. The problem with warfare is it's a competitive activity, right? And so you are pitting societies against each other. You are pitting hierarchies against each other. And throughout history, what you have found is that different, every different stage of time, every different stage of development, technology and ways of organizing mix in different fashions that advantage some groups and disadvantage others. In the industrial age, what was required of these hierarchies, military hierarchies, was a very bottom-up approach. In fact, in an ideal world, and you know, the Germans are the ones who first come up with this, it's a very bottom-up approach of lower-level military officers taking initiative acting aggressively, acting creatively, their higher-ups recognizing who's succeeding, who's failing, reinforcing success, uh, staying away from failure, and then a feedback mechanism where the top recognizes what's going on and transmits it back down. That's the ideal type. Mm -hmm. Again, the Germans do it brilliantly in World Wars I and II. It's what the Israelis learned to do. Right? And they are helped by the fact that Israeli society is so insanely bottom-up that it's a wonder that the Israelis ever get anything done because everyone argues with everyone. You know, in the United States, we have over time developed this kind of hybrid system, which is mostly bottom-up, but with this feedback mechanism from the top. The problem for the Arabs is that the hierarchies that their society prefers, that their culture uh, creates is rigidly top-down. Everything comes from the top-down, right? And you see this not just in militaries, but you see this in every walk of life. And in fact, I have a whole chapter in the book, as you guys know, where I talk about how Arab businesses and factories and schools and, you know, government bureaucracies and hospitals work, and they all work in the same fashion because it's how the Arab world runs its hierarchies. And that's fine as long as it's not a competitive activity with another hierarchy that is doing it in a fashion that is better at that moment in time. 
And the problem for the Arabs is they start going up against other militaries like the Israelis or us or the British or even the Iranians. The, their hierarchies don't work in that fashion. They work in a superior fashion for that period of time. So for the industrial age, which is the time period I'm looking at and coming into the information age, Arab hierarchies need to work in a fashion to be most efficient that their culture pushes against. Their culture sets up hierarchies that don't act in that fashion. In fact, they act in the polar opposite fashion, which is why they do so poorly in modern combat time and again. So before we end, I kind of want to circle back to why you wrote this book and the changing nature of warfare and the balance in the Middle East. Talk to us a little bit about the rise of non-state militaries in the region. Have they those forces performed better than the state militaries and how so? Yeah, this is a great question. I think that this is in some ways it's it's exactly where where we need to be thinking most strongly because there are some non-state militaries in the Middle East that are fighting better than most of the militaries, not all. In fact, the vast majority, let's understand, the vast, vast majority of non-state militaries in the Middle East are terrible, right, and weak, and do as bad, if not worse, than the formal Arab armies. But there are some groups, Hezbollah, ISIS, uh, to some extent the Nusra Front, to some extent the Houthis down in Yemen, who are doing better. They're not great militaries. This ain't the Wehrmacht or the Israeli Defense Force, but they are doing noticeably better. And again, when you start looking the way that I do in this book at that more tactical level, they're a bit better about showing you know, aggressiveness and innovation at tactical levels. They're a bit better at maneuver. They're a bit better at combined arms warfare. Not fantastic, but definitely better. And it's why they've had some successes. And first, it's very important to recognize that and I spend a fair amount of time talking about it in the book. The reason is because they don't have the same kind of hierarchies. They are born of terrorist groups. And so they have cellular structures that are very flat and are very bottom up by design, because as a terrorist group, that's how you have to survive. And then they go looking for leaders who can function in that. So they've got a non-traditional hierarchy, and they go looking for non-traditional people to lead that hierarchy, right? That's the first point. But a bigger point that's worth making, I think it's very important for the United States to be thinking about, is that the relative success of these groups, and you know, understand that in the Arab world, these guys are the rock stars, Right? Because Hezbollah, they challenged Israel. And as far as the Arabs are concerned, they won. Right? And ISIS, you know, they challenged the you know, American-backed Iraqi military. And frankly, people see them as having challenged the United States itself. And maybe they didn't win, but they didn't do too badly in the eyes of many Arabs. And what people are starting to see in the Arab world is Arab militaries that are actually fighting wars and kind of sort of winning. And I think that that has two very big implications for us. First, I think that it is demonstrating that the Arab world is starting to move in a different direction. And the problems that they've had in the past, they may not be the same problems in the future. And second, a lot of people are looking at these groups and challenging that old common wisdom that the Arabs can't advance their foreign policy by force, that Israel and the Americans will always beat them. Well, now you've got groups that are actually challenging the Israelis and the Americans. And I think it's got more and more people in the Arab world starting to think about maybe we can use force again. And I'm very nervous about that because both of those things suggest to me, concern me, 
that the Middle East may actually wind up being more violent in the future as people think that they can use force to challenge a status quo that they don't particularly like, much more so than they have over the previous 50, 60 years, that the, the patterns that I talk about so much in this book were the dominant issues in the Middle East and really set the military balance, which then set all of the politics of the region. So incredibly interesting. Um, it, it was a boiled down conversation for sure. This book is pushing us 700 pages. So if you want to take a much deeper dive in CC and I really, really encourage you to do that. Uh, pick up a copy of Armies of Sand, The Past, Present, and Future of Arab Military Effectiveness. Dr. Kim Pollack, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for your work. Thank you both for having me. Always great to be here. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. If you're not already, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on the podcast player of your choice. And while you're there, leave us a five-star rating. And as always, you can send commentary questions and feedback to banter at AEI.org. We'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, for Dr. Ken Pollack and CeCe Gallagly, this is Spencer Moore signing off. Mm-hmm.